Turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, and we'll be looking at Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. Now, normally we read the section of Scripture we're going to read. This would be somewhat long and a bit repetitive, and so instead I will just open us in prayer and we will dive immediately into the introduction in chapter 1. So please turn to Leviticus and I will... Open us in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you again so much for sending us your son. Lord, our desire is that he would be exalted even in our hearts now. And that we would grow in our knowledge of you. So I pray that you would help your word become clear. Guard me from saying anything that would be errant or misleading. And help your truth to radiate with all its glory and weight. Because you deserve to be worshipped with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and strength. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So again, we are studying the book of Leviticus. and We're going to dive right into the law of God. And uh, one of the things that I've become aware of over the years is how much Christians even misunderstand the purpose of the law of God. Many Christians assume that the Mosaic law was just another means of salvation. Yes, we in the New Testament era, we can be saved through faith in Christ, but they were saved through sacrificing animals is the frequent understanding. But actually, this is a massive misunderstanding. Because the law was never intended to be a means of salvation. It was never intended to be a means whereby a person could be reconciled permanently with God. The Old Testament saints were saved the same way New Testament believers are. Through faith. And of course then they demonstrated that faith through following God's word as he revealed it in the sacrificial system. Maybe a better way to understand it is the law was given... As a means whereby his people could draw near to him. So don't think of it primarily as a means to be, to be saved from the wrath of God in hell. But rather as a means for his people in the Old Testament, his people Israel. It was the means that he provided so that they could be drawn back to him. And so to help illustrate how the law functioned, I want to attempt an imperfect analogy. And there's even a bit of... Fear and trembling as I give this analogy because I fear that it might diminish the the glorious work of God in Leviticus. Because I want to associate it to uh, human relationships. But of course, those are insignificant compared to our relationship with God. But I'm going to attempt it anyway to to give a, a clarity regarding Leviticus. So imagine a young student who falls madly in love with this girl in his class. And it's not just her beauty that draws his affection. She's smart. She's clever. She's kind and responsible. In fact, she is everything he could ever imagine any woman to be. She is the woman of his dreams. And he eventually asks her to go with him to the big dance. And to his amazement, she accepts. However, the day before this dance and their first date together, he's approached by another girl in his class 
who is a bit jealous because she can see that his affections, his attention has been drawn to this other girl. And so she, she lies and tells him that his date is not what she appears to be. He says, she tells him that she is deceitful and selfish. And although she might be pretty, that attraction is only skin deep. And this young man, he, he foolishly believes this girl. And so instead of picking up his dream date to go to the dance, he takes this other one instead. And in short time, he discovers his error. And in anguish and grief, he wonders if there still might be a chance. And so he decides he's going to approach her best friend. She knows her better than anyone else. And his, her, sorry, her best friend isn't particularly interested in speaking to him um, because of what he had did, done to her friend. But anyhow, she does explain to him, to his shock and amazement, that her friend might be willing to try again. But massive changes need to take place in this man's life. And he would need to follow her instructions carefully. So this is what she tells him. For my friend to be willing to go on a date with you, this is what you must do. First, you need to send her 12 dozen roses. Along with a handwritten letter explaining that you were wrong. And you want to do anything you can to make up for your error. Then you also need to take a shower. You need to get a haircut. And then brush your hair. And brush your teeth. Go out and purchase a new suit. And then invite her to the nicest restaurant in town. And tell her that you're going to send a limousine to pick her up. And then finally, when you arrive, the first thing you do is fall on your knees and beg for her forgiveness. And then to show your sincere interest in her, you then need to take out your phone and delete the contact information and the pictures of any other girl you know besides your mom and your sisters. Now, at no point in this story would the pitiful young man have found these steps burdensome well why because his greatest desire this dream girl is at the end of it these steps are a means to restore that coveted relationship sure those steps might be costly a new suit a limousine 12 dozen roses but they're totally worth it And in fact, he probably would have found great joy in these steps as he anticipated what the result might be. And similarly, the Israelites would not have found the law burdensome. When they hear the book of Leviticus and they see the means whereby they can draw near to God again, their creator, and bask in his glory and the blessings of the covenant, they would not have seen these steps as frightening. They would have approached it with eagerness and they would have listened to these words with great anticipation, wanting to fully live them out. 
And so we need to see the law in this light. This is not burdensome. This is opportunity to draw near to God. The other thing I want to point out about the law by means of introduction is that the law communicates what pleases God. So, you, Because you might be asking yourself, why in the world would we be taking a few weeks to study Leviticus? All these offerings, all these legislations when we live in the New Covenant. And to answer this, I want to go back to my fictitious story. So again, imagine years later that this couple gets married and they have children. And those children come and ask their father, Dad, how is it that you ever ended up with mom? How could you win her affections? She certainly didn't see anything in you. So what did you do to draw near to her? Because we want to draw near to her ourselves. She has stayed committed to you with all your weaknesses all these years. How did you pull this off? And the father then explains to them the steps that he took to draw near to his bride. And then he explains that they don't have to follow those same steps. Because they're already her children. And they will always be her children. They, they are They're in a permanent relationship with her. However, the steps that he took reflect what their mom values and prioritizes in their relationship. And so even though these children don't have to do exactly what he did to draw near to their mom, they would be wise to learn from those steps and seek to follow them. Why? Because it shows the heart of the mother. How a healthy relationship would look. And this is also why we should study Leviticus. We should not look at Leviticus as a manual whereby we in the new covenant come to God. For in Christ we've been permanently established in our relationship with Him. However, we still can learn by looking at these offerings, today in particular, what it is that pleases God. What brings Him joy. We can learn about Him. And so although we don't need to offer these sacrifices, we can still live out what these sacrifices signified. For we worship the same God. I'll say that again. We worship the same God. It's it's very easy for us to, to think, maybe if we don't actually believe this, but we think of the God of the Old Testament as different from the God of the New Testament. But it's the same God. He, his affections, His desires, His will has not changed. Any more than the woman in my fictitious story would have changed. It's She's still who she is. God is still who He is, even though we approach Him in a different fashion. So the book of Leviticus is answering the question, how can sinful men draw near to a holy God? How can man draw near to God? And it begins where Exodus ended. Chris did a great job setting the, the stage for Leviticus. And you might note that Exodus ended. You can even look back in your Bibles, the page previously or the paragraph previously. Exodus ended with the, the tabernacle being completed and then the glory of the Lord 
descends upon the tabernacle and fills it to the extent that even Moses, the covenant mediator, cannot go in. And that might just sound like, man, that's awesome. And it is awesome. But it actually brings up a trouble statement, a problem statement. Because if Moses, the covenant mediator, can't enter the tabernacle because of the glory of the Lord, who else can? I mean, Moses, you said this was the means, the tabernacle was going to be the means whereby we could come to God. And now you can't even go in. How does this work? Well, the answer to that question is the book of Leviticus. Because again, these are the steps that God reveals. If you do these things, even though my glorious presence dwells in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, if you follow these steps, you too can bask in my presence and enjoy my glory. And so it begins. Leviticus 1.1 Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... The first thing I want to point out is that God is speaking. God's revealing these steps. The Israelites aren't coming up with them on their own. And in fact, you'll notice an emphasis here. Three times the idea of speaking is conveyed in this one verse. And in Hebrew, that's like a big red flashing light. Notice this. Notice this. It's not Moses coming up with this. It's not one of the leaders. This is God speaking. This is God's revelation. Israel, if you want to know how to come to me, listen to me. Listen to my instructions. And in fact, this this formula, God called to Moses, has come up at every major juncture in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, where God is seeking to reconcile his people to himself. So again, in Genesis 3, 9, God called to Adam. Then in Exodus, God called to Moses from the burning bush. Exodus 19, God called to Moses from the mountain. Exodus 24, God called to Moses from the cloud. And now again, he, in Leviticus, he called to Moses and spoke to him. And again, the, the reason I emphasize this, and in fact, the reason God emphasizes this, is to point out, There is no way that any man could have come up with these instructions on their own. Man couldn't have figured out how to draw near to God. God had to reveal that to them. And so just to feel the weight of this, this is like finding the greatest treasure map to the greatest treasure. It's like handed to you by Blackbeard himself. This is God's instructions on how man can draw near to him. This isn't about a person guessing what God might want. It's direct revelation. And so the principle, again, I want to establish is we need to listen to God's word if we're going to be able to abide with him. See, many people think that they can just do what they want to please God, that they can just worship him in their own fashion, in their own manner, and that's going to please him, totally ignoring his word. But it's foolish to simply guess at what God wants or to follow our own heart because God's not like us. I mean, if there's one thing that you can learn from Scripture, it's God is not like us. He's holy. He's completely without sin. 
And so if we're going to draw near to him, it has to be on his terms, not our preferences, not what we want, not what we think. And you might recount the, the story of Esther when she was told by, to approach King Ashuerus and plead on behalf of the Jews. And she knew as she goes in to the throne room, unbidden, she is putting her life at stake. Because if, if he's offended by that, she's done. Her life is over. It's forfeit. Well, Why? Because he was the king. She doesn't get to, even though she's his wife, she doesn't get to come up with her own schedule on when she wants to talk to the king. Because he's the king. None of these laws given to the Israelites in Leviticus were crafted according to their preferences. What they wanted wasn't at play. Maybe the best illustration of this is the most famous story in the book of Leviticus. That of Nadab and Abihu where they offer up strange fire to the Lord. And what happens? They're killed. Immediately. What's the point? God's God's trying to proclaim through all history, you don't come to me on your terms. You follow mine. I'm not that kind of God. I am holy. And as he says, to Aaron, and I will be regarded as holy by all of my worshipers. God is not a God made in our image. He's not like the gods of the nations. He's the God of Scripture. And He will be approached on His terms. And in Leviticus, the, the way a person is drawn near to God is done on the basis of sacrificial offerings. And that's what we'll look at today. Five offerings in particular. We'll probably only get to three. But I want to point out the word offering. It's the word korban. And actually the word itself literally means to, uh, to draw near. Isn't that interesting? Offering. In Hebrew, actually means to draw near. This is the means whereby they can draw near to God. And there are five offerings described. And they're divided into two types of offerings. The first is one that produces a sweet aroma. God says it's a, it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And those were offerings that um, were done in relationship with Him. They were, in a sense, done in worship to Him. The other kind of offering is that which did not produce a sweet aroma. And that was an offering that was done in order to draw near to God. Those were the the sin and the guilt offerings. Those were not a sweet aroma because they were were associated with sin. But the the first three offerings, the uh, burn offering and the grain offering and the peace offering, were all offerings of that elicited a sweet aroma. So these first three were offerings that were done in communion with God. The second two, the sin and guilt offerings, were done for communion with God. First three, in communion. Second two, for communion. Because of sin, it prohibits communion. All right. Let's look first of all at... The burnt offering, the first one that's listed. 
And what makes the burnt offering significant is that it is the only offering where the whole animal, the whole sacrifice is consumed upon the altar. None of it is divided to the priests or the people. None of it's eaten by anybody, but the whole sacrifice is consumed. The burnt offering is, is the Hebrew word ola. It means to go up because it is it goes up in flames is the idea. And it's listed first because it is the most frequent offering and it is the most important offering because its primary purpose was to gain acceptance into the presence of God. Notice verse 3. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. And he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So first of all, note that the animal had to be without defect. There's no flaw in it. And it had to be perfect because this animal animal was serving as a substitute for the sinner. It was a substitute for a morally imperfect person. So only something perfect would be acceptable to God. And so what's going on here is a transmission of identity. And this is particularly signified in the laying on of hands, which is what's also described there. Verse 4, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be acceptable, sorry, may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. This is a very interesting word, the laying on of hands. It's the Hebrew word samach. And what it means is, uh, it means to be pressed down. So it wasn't just kind of a light, gentle touch. The, 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 the offerer would be pressing with all his weight as if he was per- pressing all of his essence into the animal. And as he was laying his hands heavily and pressing down on the animal's head, he would take, with one hand, he would take a knife and at the same time slit the animal's throat, shedding its blood. Because death was the means of atonement. So what's going on here is the guilt of the person was being transferred over to the animal and that animal would be dying in its place. And a, a perceptive person would have immediately picked up on the fact that this animal is getting the result that my consequences deserve. I need to die. I deserve to die. By coming into God's presence, I should be killed. But instead, this animal is being killed. And you can imagine what that would be like for the worshiper. Seeing that animal that was once alive be drained of its life. And be thinking, that's because of what I did. That's because of that lie. That's because of that proud thought. God is communicating something here about how he sees sin. It's no light thing. And through this transmission, the sins of the worshiper were atoned for. The word atonement, again, you can think of it as... At one mint. It means that one can now be at one with God. It enables one to draw near to God because they were cleansed from their impurities. And you'll notice that this offering, the, the, this chapter gets kind of broken down into three sections based upon the kind of animal that's being offered. They could offer up a burnt offering of a cow or a bull part of the flock, verse 10, or even birds in verse 14. 
And what's going on here is these burnt offerings are, are associated with various different income levels. So a cow would have been very expensive for most Israelites. It would have cost about a month's wages. Just imagine what that would cost you today. That's what they're offering up for this burnt offering. And so what God is doing here is he's making allowance for people based upon their income levels. If they can't afford a bull, give a sheep. And if he can't afford a sheep, give a bird. And think about that. What does that tell you about God? God's priority is not the cost as much as it is wanting all people to be able to come to him. He's no respecter of persons. He does want us to give our best, what we can afford. But really what he wants is our hearts. God wants to accept his people, but they need to follow his instructions in order to be accepted. But the the main thing I really want to point out about this offering is that it was burnt up completely. Thus, again, the burnt offering. So again, the the person making the sacrifice identified with the animal being sacrificed. It was, in a sense, it was like their mini-me. Their little selves. And so as that offer, offering was being burnt up in the flames on the altar, and it was wholly consumed, it was as if they were saying, my life is wholly given over to worshiping you. By the whole burnt offering giving up, the offerer is saying, all of me is yours, God. I, deserve, I, I am willing to be consumed on your altar, the altar for your glory. And this is fully in line with what we read about. What is the summary of all of the Old Testament law? Remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus that question? What did he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. All of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. God wants all of it. Not part of it. Not half your heart. All of your heart. And this is also why Paul says to to the Romans in chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Again, this is New Testament. Okay, same God. Paul applies Christ by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying, all of your life is God's now. If you understand the gospel, you don't hold on to any idol. You don't hold on to any sin. You say with all of your life, I am holy God's. I live no longer for myself, but for him who died and rose again on my behalf. And this is what this offering signified. It was complete surrender to God and complete acceptance. Because as that offering went up, God says, and it is a soothing aroma. There is no better smell, no better sound in the ears of God than to hear, I love you with all my heart with all my soul, with all my mind. That's what our God wants. It's what He's created us for. 
The worshiper who is acceptable to God is the one who is wholly devoted to him. This is the essence of worship. This is why the sacrifice is listed first. Right? This is the essence of worship. You want to know how to draw near to me? You need to know what it means to worship me. There, you shall have no other gods before me. You're not going to, you cannot share me with sin. You cannot share me with another idol. If you want to be my worshipers, Israel, if you want to be my worshipers, Christians, it's got to be all your heart. It's got to be all your mind. It's got to be all you. If a girl is going to accept a proposal of marriage from a man, she's got to be convinced that he's wholly devoted to her. She's not going to say yes if he still wants to hold on to his girlfriends. If he's not going to sever those relationships, there is no real desire for marriage. She is just an object in his eyes. He's using her, right? If he's not willing to sever all those relationships, it shows he doesn't really want her to be his wife. He just wants her as a companion or he wants her for an object. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we communicate to God when we try to have, say we worship God, but we also hold on to our sin that we're unwilling to repent of. It's not worship. It's not worship at all. It's mockery. Wholehearted devotion is necessary. And it's this sort of devotion that's expressed in the burnt offering. Now you might imagine that if a man was going to propose to a girl, he would then offer her a diamond ring, right? That's what we do in our culture. A a symbol of how valuable she is. But not just that. The ring is a symbol that all that he owns, he now desires to share with her. And that's really what's being conveyed in the next offering, the grain offering. It's a, it's a gift or a tribute offering that signifies all that the worshiper has is really God's. Because everything they have has been a gift of God. The word tribute is used in Genesis 32 when Jacob used a tribute to appease his brother's wrath. He, he was afraid Esau was going to come kill him after he heard that he was coming back into the land. And so he sends out just tons of animals as a gift. And in 1 Kings 4.21, the word is used for what the kings gave to Solomon as tribute. And so the reason I use those cross-references is to show that this word is not just like giving somebody a sticker. It's not just like, you know, giving them a candy bar. This is a princely gift. This is a, this is a significant gift. Like an engagement ring. And there's really two kinds of grain offerings as we see in Leviticus chapter 2. There is a cooked grain offering and an uncooked Grain offering. First is described in 1 through 3, the second in verses 4 through 10. And the importance isn't whether it was cooked or uncooked. That's rather insignificant. But what gets emphasized with the grain offering is the ingredients. How is it made? What goes into it? Or even what does not go into it? So let me point some things out. Beginning in verse 2. It says, when a person 
This is chapter 2, verse 2. When a person presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. This word fine flour means it's an expensive flour. Actually, the book of Ezekiel, it's associated alongside silver and gold and other fine clothing. So it's like the super nicest flour you can buy. It's what you get at New Seasons or Whole Foods, and you pay far more than you need to. Super good stuff. The best is the idea. And the oil, it, it, usually oil in, in the Old Testament signifies joy. So there's a, there's a joy in the offering up of this princely gift to God. Note also in verse 3 that salt is used. Actually, it's chapter 7, verse 3 is where that's mentioned. But, but the salt is used. Oh, verse 13, I said verse 13. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Wow, man. Salt, 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 salt. Again, anytime you see a word emphasized, especially in short succession like that, it's important. Well, why? What does salt convey? The purpose of salt in the Old Testament, in that era, in the ancient Near East, was to preserve things. And in fact, that's how it's even used. That, that, that phrase, the salt of the covenant, it's used in uh, the book of Numbers, in particular Numbers 18, 19, as, a, as a, um, a covenant that will not wear out. It is a perpetual, perpetual covenant. It, so the, the, the covenant itself is like salt. It's preserved forever. And so by offering up this sacrifice, what the person's doing is saying, this is part of our covenant, God. The reason that I can offer up this princely gift to you, and I want to, is because I realize you have given me all that I have. All that I have is a result of being in covenant with you. So I delight to give it to you. And in fact, it says part of the grain offering was given at, there's, there's a portion that's given as a memorial tribute. And really what's going on there is part of the grain offering is given on its own to, on the altar of God. And it's burned up by God. It's saying, God, that's yours. Just as a memory, I, a reminder, all of this is from you. It's not something I've earned. That's what's being conveyed in this offering. There is no yeast, you'll note. Because yeast, as we know, is representative of sin. So not only the worshiper needs to be free from sin, but even the gifts. So think about what that signifies about what God thinks. God not only wants us to draw him to, close to him with pure hearts, but he wants even the gifts that we give to be pure. There's no honey. And nobody knows for certain why honey's not allowed. Maybe because it was used as a sweetener and it's a way of saying God saying, this, this is my gift. You're giving this to me. I care about your heart. I don't care about how it tastes. It's possible. It's also possible because honey was associated with death. And you know, think of the story of Samson where he discovered honey in the carcass of a lion. We don't know. But it was prohibited. And in presenting this offering, the worshiper was acknowledging that all he had belonged to God. 
The third offering that's mentioned is the peace offering. The peace offering. This is celebrating the benefits of being reconciled to God. The the word peace is related to the the word shalom you might be familiar with. Because this offering is celebrating the peace that we have with God. And it was probably actually a communal meal. A meal that you ate with your family and friends, maybe even more. And the reason we think that is because only only, um, a small portion of it the, actually, the entrails and the fat surrounding the entrails was actually offered up on the altar to God. The rest of it was burnt up, and then it was, it was burned, it was cooked, and then it was divided out among the, the, the priest, the worshiper, and family members, your friends, that came together. So because only a small portion was actually burned up on the Lord's altar for him, it signifies that this is something people ate together because there would just been so much meat to partake in. I mean, just imagine if, if we sacrificed a whole bull, not everybody, we couldn't consume it as a whole church. It would take multiple days. And note also there's still the laying on of hands, the sprinkling of blood signifying that there still needs to be an atonement made. And there's three kinds described. person can offer up cattle, verse 1, sheep, verse 6, goats, verse 12. In fact, the peace offering is actually what's being signified in the story of the prodigal son. When the son returns to the father and he sees him coming and he runs to him. When he comes home, what does he say? I want you to offer up the fatted calf. Why? Because he's so thankful. Because there's been reconciliation that's been accomplished. This son that once was lost is now found. The offering was an expression of joy and being reconciled and united in their relationship with God. And again, interesting, the only portion that's not given to the priests or the people was the abdominal organs, the kidney, the loins, and the liver. Why would that be? Well, most likely it's because these represented the emotions. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews believed that the seat of the emotions was not the heart, it was the guts. And so what's being signified is that the the worshiper, in a sense, is saying, all of my heart, all of my affections, all of my emotions are now at peace because I'm at peace with you. The means to internal peace is atonement. Drawing near to God. To say it another way, being at peace with God is what brings the emotional experience of peace. Think of Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Let's go ahead and look at that. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Philippians chapter 4, 5 through 7. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Drawing near to God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the same God. 
Old Testament, same God as the New Testament. The same means to peace is surrendering our hearts to God. Surrendering our lives to Him, trusting Him. Not leaning on our understanding, but saying, God, I will do Your will. And I trust that Your will, as hard as it might be, is good for me. And this, what's especially interesting about the sacrifice, it stands out like, again, a red light flashing, is that it is heavy, seriously heavy on prohibitions. There is a lot of do not associated with this peace offering. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. If you look at chapter 17, which further describes the peace offering, beginning at verse 19, it lists all sorts of things that people should not do or else bad things are going to happen to them. So, go ahead and flip over there. Chapter 7, verse 19. It says, anybody who ate the offering while unclean will be cut off. Anybody who ate the blood or the fat, which was the Lord's person, will be cut off. Do not, do not, do not. Why does God spend so much time explaining to the Israelites to not do these things or else they'll be cut off? By the way, what, the, what it means to be cut off means they'll be killed. It doesn't mean that he's saying, Moses, if you see somebody that comes to me in an unworthy manner, I want you to kill him. It means God's saying, I'll do it. I mean, that's why he took down Nadab and Abihu. There's no command to kill them here. But he's saying if anybody presumes to defile the peace offering, I will cut them off. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would God say such strict things in conjunction with the peace offering? I mean, it's the peace offering. But that's the point. Because when you're at peace in a relationship with somebody, that's when you presume upon that relationship. I mean, why is it that we have the easiest time being jerks to our family members? Being unkind to our wives or disrespectful to our husbands? Well, it's because we know that relationship's at peace. Why is it that Soldiers in peaceful nations tend to let their guard down. But those who are on a battlefield are wary of everything. So wary that when they come back into the States, they struggle with PTSD. Why is that? Why is it that a soldier in a peaceful situation ends up going on R&R and making a mess of himself? Because it's at peace. He's not worried about the risk. That's what God's saying. Don't presume that because I'm allowing you to celebrate the peace that you have with me, that that means you can get away with sin. That you can get away with half-hearted worship. Don't presume on this sacrifice. Because if you do, you are mocking me. 
Don't mock me. Is what he's communicating here. So even though the sacrifice was a celebration of being at peace with God, it didn't mean that one was free to defile that which was sacred. Being at peace with God does not allow freedom to sin any more than getting married allows a spouse to go commit adultery. Well, she's not going to leave me anymore because we're married and Bible says you can't get divorced. Therefore, I can commit adultery. If somebody has that mind, it is sick to the core. It is the highest mockery of their spouse. It is not conveying love or respect or trust. Being at peace with God does not allow us to rebel against Him. That's what God's conveying here. Galatians 6 New Testament verse. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will reap eternal life. And you might be thinking, and I got Everyone here fooled. Going to this church for a while. Maybe it's your first time. I think, yeah, they think I'm a pretty good person. They don't know about my addiction. They don't know that I really don't believe in God. I'm just here because my parents make me. They don't know that I'm actually sleeping with my girlfriend right now. I got them fooled. They don't know that I actually despise them. They think I'm pretty nice. I think they're idiots. I got them fooled. You might be thinking that. And you know what? You might be right. You might have all of us fooled. You can care less about what God thinks of your life. You might even think that you're at peace with God, but you're heart is far from him. You may have us fooled, but God is not fooled. And who's the bigger fool? The one who who rejoices that everybody else is fooled and thinks they're pretty good? Or the one that recognizes the one who's not fooled is the only one they should really be concerned about? God knows your heart. You need to be concerned what he sees. We're not the ones whom you need to please. You're only fooling yourself. And I say that because if there is any sin in your life that you are not right now eager and willing to get rid of, you have no reason to believe that you're at peace with God. Ask yourself that question. Is there anything that any sin that I'm not willing to right now repent of forever. If God allows, if God enables you to do so, if there's any, any sin that you are not willing to let go of, not willing to confess, not willing to make restitution for, you have no reason to believe that you're at peace with God. And in fact, you're mocking Him. 
by singing his worship songs. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Either that sin that you love or this God. And the reality is your life is hanging by a thread. You don't know if you have another day. And if right now, this day, you perish, what are you going to say to God? Because what he's going to say to you is you heard that message. You heard that warning. That one must come to me with all their heart, submit all of their life to me, and renounce all of their sin. And you chose sin. You chose sin because you love that more than the grace that I offer you. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. I didn't come up with this. Moses didn't come up with this. God revealed this to us. And you can believe in whatever God you want to believe in and think, oh, well, he's going to be at peace with me even with my sin that I so love. But you're believing a lie. If you will not readily renounce all the sin in your life and come to him with full faith and repentance, you are not at peace with God. And just because a Christian is at peace with God does not mean that they're free to sin or that they're free from his severe discipline. So even if one is in Christ and they truly have repented from their sins and they they hate their sin, that still doesn't mean that they are free to do whatever they like. Well, how do I know that? Because this is the mistake the Corinthians made in their celebration of the Lord's table. The Lord says through Paul, you, you're eating of the, word, the, the, the body and the bread in an unworthy manner because you can't rightly discern the body. This is sacrificial language. Paul's drawing on Leviticus. You can't eat of the body and blood of the Lord that symbolizes our union with Christ and still hold on to sin. You're mocking God. And what happened to the Corinthians? He said, some of you are sick and some of you are dying because it's exactly what you're doing. You might be thinking, well, I've eaten communion 30, 50 times without repenting from our sin. Well, if that's the case, you are on borrowed time. It's the same God that killed Nadab and Abihu. Same God that killed Ananias and Sapphira and the Corinthians because they mocked the celebration of peace with him. Peace with God does not give liberty to sin. So in summary, three offerings, because we are out of time. Three offerings. Burnt offering displays complete dedication to God and complete acceptance by God on the basis of atonement. The grain offering All of one's possessions are the result of being in covenant with God. All our possessions are His. And the peace offering, an expression of joy in being at peace with God based on sin being atoned. And yet even in the celebration of peace, God warns defilement will result in death. So I close with this phrase and actually transition to the Lord's table. Ephesians 2.13 boldly proclaims this wonderful truth. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, everything that the, the, the offerings were meant to signify, to tell us about God, that the, the allowed drawing near to God were fulfilled in Christ. We don't have to offer up sacrifices anymore because Christ has fulfilled all that they were pointing to. So think about all that's conveyed even in the Lord's table and how this parallels the sacrifices, the offerings. There's forgiveness found in Christ. Atonement. In fact, in Matthew 26, Jesus says he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The point is, forgiveness of sins isn't accomplished by the killing of goats and sheep and birds. It can only be accomplished through the shedding of the Son of God Himself. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can make us clean again before God. But His blood perfectly cleanses all of our sin. And we can stand confident in that. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven. Forgiveness, atonement, consecration. As we take the body and blood, or body and, sorry, the bread and the cup, as we take that, we're saying, God, my whole life is yours. I will follow you, Christ. Just as you were willing to give up my, your life for me, I'm willing to follow you at whatever the cost. It's consecration. It also signifies fellowship. It's one of the emphasis of Paul in 1 Corinthians. Since we have fellowship with God, we now have fellowship with one another. It's a communal meal, like the peace offering. But even though it's a peace offering, it's one we need to come at with still some trepidation. And again, do not take, partake of the elements today if you're not a follower of Christ. You would just be mocking this celebration. Nor would I say, don't partake of these elements if you're not willing to renounce all the sin in your life and repent from them this day. Because if that's the case, there's no reason for you to believe that you're at peace with God and therefore you would be mocking Him and taking of this celebration. But I would encourage all who are followers of Christ, who believe that Christ has given us through His atonement forgiveness, who want to give their life wholly for Him and His glory, and who want to celebrate the peace and the fellowship that we have with God and with one another, I would invite you, come with joy and consider all the richness that this table is meant to convey. With that, let's pray. Father, I do pray that You would encourage our hearts through the celebration of the work of Christ. We, have, we only want to exalt You. We only want to proclaim your holiness and your majesty and your glory. And that forgiveness from sins can only be found in you alone. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and the faith to repent of all of our sin. And to come to you for perfect cleansing in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.